Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Toronto International Film Festival's Industry Conference. My name is Julia Shingavi, Industry Conference Manager. Glengold Studio is located on the treaty lands and territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit and the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, the Wendat, and the Haudenosaunee. The territory is within the lands protected by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant and is home to many First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people. We are grateful to work on this land and to bring the work of Indigenous artists to our audience. We are thrilled to be hosting IndieWire Screen Talk Live, with Screen Talk approaching its 400th episode, this session will take stock of the dramatic changes to the business and culture of moviegoing. We'd like to thank our lead sponsor, Bell, major sponsors, RBC, Visa, and Bulgari, and our major industry supporters, Telefilm Canada and Ontario Creates. Now please join me in welcoming to the stage IndieWire Vice President Eric Cohn, Executive Editor Kate Erbland, and Chief Critic David Ehrlich. Hey everyone, thanks for taking a break from watching movies to come listen to a bunch of people talk about movies. It's really great to be here. Um, so if, if you're not familiar with our Screen Talk podcast, this is a, something that I started with my wonderful colleague, Ann Thompson, a little over eight years ago. Uh, and we're approaching our 400th episode this fall, and it's been a really incredible journey just bickering about movies over the course of that time. And I'm really happy to have my colleagues, Kate and David, here to do that because we've all kind of been in the trenches of festivals, and it, it's like the body remembers it even when you're not there, how intense it is to just run around and watch all these movies and process them and then try to figure out like what the big picture is. But what's fascinating is that this is sort of like a reunion of sorts because the three of us haven't been to this festival since 2019. So I think just as a starting point, we should talk a bit about that, what the experience is like of being a festival person and then not having the festival physically, you know, running around seeing these movies with audiences for two years, given just, you know, how dramatic the reason is that we didn't do this. So, Kate, why don't you start? You're a TIFF veteran. Uh, what's it like to come back after so much time? Well, it's wonderful to be back. I'm so happy to be back. Um, it felt like last year there was sort of a chance for some of us to come back, and a few of our colleagues did, but we didn't for obvious reasons. But like Eric said, the body remembers. I, I got to Toronto, and I was like, oh, it could have been 2019 all over again. And so I'm really happy to be back, but tired. I think I'm a little out of practice. David, what about you? I mean, the festival circuit has not been, you know, completely dormant over the last few years. I think one of the, the recurring feelings I've had since the pandemic started is just how uh, the weirdest element is how normal everything continues to feel. Uh, I mean, Cannes has been going on, we've been there, and, and we just came back from Telluride. Um, but there is definitely a different energy here than I felt, I think, even at 
you know, a place like Cannes, which is a circus unto itself, there, it does feel in the 48 hours since I've gotten here, like the city is really embracing the festival and the crowd at Bros last night was, was a kind of festival environment that uh, I haven't experienced in a number of years. And it definitely feels like uh, a return to, I mean, the, the phrase return to normal is very complicated and loaded, but um, it, at least in the very particular festival bubble in the context in which we're talking about, it, it felt like a nice return to normal last night. Yeah, let, let's back up for a second because of the weirdness of the last two years also involved the way in which we covered films, the way that filmmakers got out in the world, you know, the virtual festival concept. And I haven't heard that talked about lately because people don't have to in the same way, but there was a while there where it kind of felt like this was going to be the new normal. And of course, festivals for a long time were trying to figure out, well, how do we get outside of this like bubble of this activity and get movies out to people, so on some level, that it was a, it was a fascinating experiment that was sort of forced out there. But I remember this I have this really distinct memory of right when South by Southwest canceled, and we we gathered in my office and talked about how we were still going to cover the movies in the festival. And then from that point forward, we had that you know a, a pretty long experience of kind of trying to keep up with the festivals from home, as recently as this year when Sundance was virtual, of course. So. What are some lessons we can take out of that experience in terms of you know, covering a festival in that context, in your living room, with a very flexible schedule versus being at the mercy of so many other factors in a festival environment? I think you know, it's, it might sound like inside baseball, and certainly is in a certain way, but I think it's an important thing for us to look at now that we have such a striking contrast. I mean, I think the first big mistake that I made was I really tried to, you know, approximate a festival experience at home. I'm very lucky that we have a beautiful 90-inch projector screen at home, but I would try to like make a schedule like I would be at Sundance or I would be at South By, and it just it wasn't the same, and it kind of made me sad. So I stopped doing that, and so I kind of folded screenings in the way I would when we're just back home in New York, and we might see a screening during the day, and I think that was more productive, even if emotionally it didn't, it didn't feel as good, but it wasn't the same, and I think I felt better after I stopped pretending it was the same. So that's why this is so exciting. I was like, this is how it's supposed to be. One of the defining aspects of movies as a medium is sort of the focused attention that they require and instill and demand. And that is, by definition, something that you're not getting into the festival experience at home. Uh, and I would say, it, it, you know, I, I am not uh, throwing out the, the baby with the bathwater and saying that virtual cinemas and, and the virtual festival experience is something we should disregard. There are so many upsides to that, um, particularly you, know, you see Sundance adopting it on a more permanent basis moving forward. And I think that'll be a really interesting opportunity. But uh, it's definitely, like film festival, in my experience, and maybe some of you out there feel the same way, it's, it's not possible even to do in your home city, let alone in your actual home. Uh, to enjoy a film festival for me, to really be enmeshed in it, uh, you can't have laundry, you can't have to pick up your kid from daycare, uh, you have to sort of be all in and, and embrace the bubble of it all, uh, forget what day it is and what's happening in the world, um, and that is uh, all that allows you to write at the volume that we have to and see the number of movies that we do and to really just talk about them with a primacy as if they are the most important things in the world, which for a few you know, short days we allow them to be, and that's the, the beauty of being here. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, a very, it's a very different experience uh, being here. Um, 
Even if you know you spend most of the time in your hotel room writing about you know movie, movies you may have seen somewhere else, but David and I are sharing a suite, and so I can attest to the fact that often I come home and he's just like sort of hunched over the kitchen table, moaning. That's what um, what an image to paint for everyone out there. Thank you. But he's he's having a great time. He loves his job. Always. All that pain is going into your prose, of course. It's you have to all, suffer. All for the your beauty art. and the bloodshed together. <laughs> No, but it's also fascinating because I mean, TIFF is a very international festival. It's got something like 200 films, and a lot of them are, are challenging. I mean, today, I know David and I saw this film from Jafar Panahi, No Bears, for example, and I was actually, as I was watching, I was thinking about how awful it would have been if, this had, if I had had to watch this at home. And actually, someone was telling me last weekend when I was in Telluride that even though there is a rise in people watching international films, there's also a rise in dubbing on streaming services in particular, people using dub tracks, because they're looking at their phones. If you look at your phone, you're not reading the subtitles. There's no way you could experience a Jafar Panahi film that way. Yeah, I mean, seeing it here, we got to see the uh, DCP stop working 30 minutes into the movie, which that happened. Uh, at, at, after 30 minutes of setting up this world in which anything could sort of happen to the screen, and like you didn't know if you were watching a film or a film within a film or a film within a film uh, adjacent to another film, and the film broke, and everybody in the audience spent a good 15 or 20 seconds assuming that it was part of the movie, uh, which is again something that you don't get to have at home, which I think added to the experience and they should replicate down the line. <laughs> Actually, this was an amazing moment because the screen, at first it kind of like went jittery and then it went black. And I think everyone was sort of wait, because it's Jafar Panahi, is, you know, he, he's got a lot of tricks up his sleeve and he's playing himself as a filmmaker in this movie. So I think a lot of people were waiting for it to cut, like this was part of the movie. And then like a minute went by and I was like, wow, he's really challenging us. And then it was like <laughs> two minutes. And then finally they made an announcement. So There was, there was one person who ran up to the, the staff there and was shouting about how uh, this was disrespecting Jafar Panahi's work as if they were doing it on purpose. Uh, and I just- There's a very not... prominent critic who we won't name. Oh yeah. Uh, and I just, I just uh, couldn't help but think that uh, um, that he would get a kick out of it, that it was there's some sort of poetry right. to what was happening. And the movie was restored after a few minutes, and life went on. Yeah, I mean, of course, he is in, in jail right now, so on some level it's, it's kind of comforting that his films are still having this kind of impact out in the world. So this is a good excuse to talk about a bunch of stuff. Um, of course, the lights just went out around us, which is an extension. <laughs> That's the same this person. This is not part of the show. Yeah. <laughs> um, Let's talk about some of the other films that we're seeing. Uh, you mentioned Bros being pretty rowdy. We've talked about No Bears, but um, there was so much stuff that was sort of... <laughs> <laughs> I'm being punked. <laughs> Time's up, I guess. Well, who wants we to had this extra seat for Steven Spielberg to join us as a yeah. surprise guest. Oh. Re repeat what I'm saying. Oh, hello? Hi. I was going to put you in charge of, of saying that we're going to talk about movies Never that we're a good seeing. Idea. The buzzier ones, right? Festival buzz is this crazy, complicated thing because, of course, we go into the festival talking about the bigger movies and hoping to be surprised by certain kinds of things. There are certain ways in which the climate kind of dictates how the media looks at the festival. So let's talk about some of the stuff that we've been excited about um, and you know, maybe some things that aren't getting the kind of buzz that, uh, that they deserve. Kate, you want to kick us off? I don't even remember the titles that I sent to Eric that I was excited about, but I did see, I saw Women Talking this morning, which is obviously not some under-the-radar hit, and it was exquisite, and it did not disappoint me at all, and I love that. Um, I also very much enjoyed Bros. 
on Thursday morning before you know the festival really kicks off, kind of have a little time to see some stuff you've missed. And so I saw Triangle of Sadness, which I had a great time with, and the queen died right in the middle of it, which seems like a very strange um, historical moment. Um, and what else? There's a few things coming up um, that I pre-screened in New York. I can't say any names, but there is a really great oh, film coming wow. out, tomo premiering tomorrow. Very helpful. By a, a female filmmaker who's had another film already out this year. So you can... And you liked it. And I saying. loved it. Good. So, you know, tomorrow afternoon, I think some of you people have answers to this. But there's some great stuff coming when, up. When this episode runs, we're going like, to re-edit this with ADR so you can uh, explain. No, but actually, I want to go through a couple of those. Because, like, Women Talking is a fascinating example of a movie that is... It's a discovery, and it's not a discovery in the sense that there's awards buzz around it. But it's not the kind of movie you really want to hype because... Well, let's talk about it. What What is this movie and what makes it so good? I mean, well, it's it's Canada's own Sarah Poli, who is a, an incredible gift to cinema, and it's an adaptation of the novel of the same name. It is about a Mennonite community. Um, it's loosely based on a true story. And these women um, have discovered that over the period of many years, a number of men in their community have been drugging them and raping them in the middle of the night. And they come to a point where they have to decide, they have three options. They're gonna stay and do nothing, they're gonna stay and fight, or they're gonna leave. And it is a room full of incredible women and one man discussing the fate of their community. And it's incredible and it's funny and it's so sad and it just, it was the first thing I saw this morning. It really moved me. I was in a packed house. You could tell that everyone else was very moved by it, but not a discovery because we know Sarah. We know she's an incredible talent. It was at Telluride, so I came here knowing I had to see this, but it didn't disappoint. And that's my favorite part of a festival, like reading and writing all this stuff and still being like, nope, this is a masterpiece. And I don't throw around words like that too easily, but it did not disappoint. And David liked everything but the cinematography. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I wasn't going to go off on, uh, on that here, but um, I, I'm also, I was also a big fan of women talking for the most part. Um, but it's, it's funny, you know, talking about under-the-radar hits versus the buzzier titles. At a festival as big as Toronto, it's really hard to, I think it, you have to cater the, the metrics based on who you're talking to, because on the one hand, you have the gala presentations uh, that everyone might be familiar with. On the other hand, you have like the Wavelengths program, where to some people we may be speaking to, those might be very very obvious selections, but um, for the rest of us. And so like a film that I really love, uh, like After Sun, I don't even know what category it's playing in, but I feel like it could belong in any of the ones that I just mentioned. Um, I premiered it at Cannes. Uh, it's by a filmmaker named Charlie Wells. A24 is putting it out later this year. Uh, all of that would suggest a sort of higher profile. Uh, when you see the film, you'll understand it's smaller and, and dare I say more experimental. Scope, um, a hard film to describe. It's essentially an autobiographical film uh, about a woman remembering a vacation she took to Turkey with her dad in the very late 90s. Her dad is played in this movie by Paul Mescal, uh, who is wonderful in it. And the movie is sort of... It sort of looks back at it through the past and the present simultaneously. It's a lot of uh, mini DV footage from that trip. Um, that is all. I mean, all of it is is fiction. As much of it's drawn from life. There's no documentary footage in the film. But uh, and then there's some footage from the present looking back. And it's just uh, one of several films. If we want to get into the thematic connections later, um, that I've seen that are about filmmakers 
reflecting on a past that they cannot return to and the nostalgia and the wistfulness and the lack of knowing that come with that. Um, and it makes for, I mean, I think of like Joanna Hogg's The Eternal Daughter, it'd be a great double feature with that. Um, it, it makes for an interesting counterpoint to some of the movies we've seen uh, that find major filmmakers very much returning to uh, a period earlier in their lives or a more personal place, like Sam Mendes, uh, to my mind, very ineffectual uh, Empire of Light. Hopefully, he hated Steve, it. Yeah, uh, hopefully Steven Spielberg's much more satisfying The Fablemans, which we'll see tonight. Um, and I mean, this trend, if you want to call it that, you know, goes back to to Roma. I think so much of Terrence Davies, much before that, and and him really being a trailblazer in ways that aren't appreciated uh, when they can benefit him. Um, and it is fascinating yeah. how the pandemic sort of stimulated all these. Yeah. Things. Finally, Spielberg got it. Spielberg goes last, right? Everybody, <laughs> it's like building up to the Spielberg movie about himself, which of course is tonight as we're recording this. So we can't talk about that. We can't talk about Glass Onion, the Knives Out sequel. So this is sort of a moving target. It's like the the discourse could shift rapidly in a couple of days in terms of what's really standing out. Uh, but, uh, but there's a couple of different things that I think are, are worth looking at here from a Cannes standpoint, too. Because after Sun, when it was at Cannes, was at Critics Week, nobody really knew what it was. Then A24 bought it, and now they're kind of gradually allowing it to come into this ecosystem and be reintroduced. And it'll go to a New York Film Festival, and it'll open. Now, it's really hard for people to see art house movies now. That whole market is still struggling to come back. So it needs this whole kind of cycle to gradually get out there. Another A24 film I would flag on, on that level, which we saw, uh, Kate and I, it's The Inspection. I don't know if you've seen it yet, David, not yet. Um, which is also closing night at New York Film Festival. And that's a fascinating movie, I think, because it, similar to After Sun, it's a very personal kind of project um, about a black gay uh, man in the in the military, and it's based on the director's own experiences. Uh, but again, I wouldn't overhype it. I would say you have to kind of be in the film to see uh, to see what it's like. And you gave it a really good review. I'm curious what you made of it, given what you knew going into it. Well, I mean, obviously, there's a tremendous amount of hype. It's at Toronto. It's closing New York. Um, but the thing that I really love so much about it is that, despite the fact that it can sound pretty dour and dark. It has moments of great humor, and it's very entertaining. And we saw it at Princess of Wales with a giant crowd, and they really vibed to it. They understood, like, it's okay for this to be funny, even when there's moments of, you know, tremendous trauma and pain right next to it. And I, I think that's something that if someone had told me, oh, no, it's actually funny, I would have been like, no, I, I, it doesn't sound like it. But seeing it, um, I'm now telling people it's funny, and you guys can all believe me. But I think that that's really going to be beneficial for it when, as it continues to roll out. And it's like, no, this is a very special film, and it's not what you think it is in a, in a very good way. And it's also really fascinating because it's somewhat critic-friendly, although I think your review is probably one of the most positive. And I've heard different kinds of reactions from people because it's a very small, contained film. And one of the things that was fascinating to me talking to um, people at the after party for the film is that you could tell that the festival audience is not the ultimate audience for this movie. That there's like some veterans out there who are gonna be really like into what this movie is about. Not all veterans, but it's not a monolithic category. And that's one thing that I think we don't talk about enough is, is how different 
the audiences are than festival audiences. I mean, TIFF is a really interesting example because you're sitting with a public audience usually. Uh, the Bros screening, for example, which um, were we all at that? So that was a, a really interesting example, I think, of, you know, it was a very fun, rowdy crowd that was into this movie. And uh, it's a real question with a rom-com, even a gay rom-com that is sort of a rarity. Uh, how does that translate commercially? But I think it's also a question that people who go to a festival have the privilege of not having to answer because the whole point of being here is being able to be in the best audience that weird the Al Yankovic movie is ever going to have and knowing that and not needing to care about how it's going to play on TV or in like a half-filled multiplex somewhere six months later. Uh, it is the event that you are paying for and traveling for and, and being there for. And so uh, it's obviously a relevant question that you're asking, but at the same time, I think one of the great pleasures of being at a festival is for those two hours not having to answer it because you can just be in that moment. And as a critic, you have a responsibility to sort of you know, do your best to write for several different audiences at once. I mean, I think we're always doing a split-brain approach for, where we're writing for people who haven't seen the film and also people who have in the body of the same article uh, without, you know, demarcating where one stops and the other begins. But, uh, yeah, and so, like, you can see a movie like like Bros and and understand that it may play a different, uh, slightly differently in an audience that is less primed for that experience. But, uh yeah, I mean, I don't know. My favorite part about being at places like this is just letting, just being in that moment. So how is Weird? I didn't see it. Who's seen it? I saw it. Tell us about Weird. First of all, explain what Weird is. <laughs> weird is a, a fake uh, biopic about Weird Al Yankovic, played by, mainly by Daniel Radcliffe, who has had sort of the most interesting career post-Harry Potter. I think it's something he's, he's very much, uh, it's intentional, it's what he wants to do. I think it's really fun. It pokes fun at all kinds of different biopics, but then it gets, it doesn't get weird enough by the end, but I think it was a lot of fun with a crowd, but it's gonna be on the Roku channel. So I had an experience that like most viewers are not gonna have with it. Well, that's a unique case because it's like, I honestly don't know what the Roku channel is or where to find it. And my feeling was if I don't see this movie here, it will become like this lost object that I'll never be able to find again. Yeah. I've been I mean, I was talking about this on an earlier episode this season because I love the new Richard Linklater movie, Apollo 10 and a Half, and I think he's a major American filmmaker, and when he makes a new movie, we should pay attention. He's had a few misfires the last few years. This wasn't one of them, and it was at South by Southwest, and then it kind of just materialized on Netflix and vanished into the ether. I mean, that happens so much now, and it's really frustrating, and I, you know, we don't know exactly how much streamers are going through kind of an identity crisis around these things, but it is one thing that I've been thinking about a lot coming back to a festival like this. I mean, tonight we see Knives Out too. Knives Out, the first movie, obviously was a, this surprise theatrical success. Then Netflix acquired the sequel and made the sequel. So Netflix really has to figure out what is the identity of that movie. And you have a feeling that Netflix is going to be taking their cues from how tonight goes, how this one screening is received, is going to play a, uh, a sort of outsized role in the nature of the film's ultimate rollout and determining how wide they want to take it because this could be a real test case for them in terms of how they want to move into the theatrical space. 
I want to back up for a second and go back to bros, because we haven't talked nearly enough about bros. We keep referencing bros. We say the well, word bros a lot, but let's, let's talk about I, I also, I think to start, I mean, bros is a historic film for several obvious reasons, but I also want to put some respect on the name of the person who directed it, who's Nicholas Stoller, who made one of, I think what we can all agree, everyone in this audience would join me in feeling this way, the greatest films ever made in Forgetting Sarah Marshall, uh, and are should you, be... Are you going to tell them? About uh, no, no, we don't need to go no, that yes, far into no, the weeds. No, you do. But no, I... Yes, I, you do. I, I mean, there were... David had a reading from forgetting Sarah Marshall at his wedding. It's true. So when he, uh, right, when he is talking about loving Nicholas Stoller, this is not a put on. Oh, this not is, at all. This is um, very, very. And rude. I just, I, you know, I, seeing this film unfold last night, I could just get a sense that no one really gave a shit. Can I swear in this? Bit? I don't know. You're uh, no one really gave a shit who he was and wasn't, you know, it wasn't like the, the 10 minute standing ovation uh, you get at Venice or people clapping when he walked into the room. And I was like, put some respect on a comedy director of his talents. Anyway, uh, and Bros, I think, is a vintage Nicholas Stoller movie while also being the first of its kind in another respect, if you want right. to piggyback off that. I mean, it's one of these things that's always like hard to say. It's I guess it's the first uh, gay rom-com put out by a studio where I believe all the leads are of the LGBTQ community. All the actors, I believe, even the ones playing straight characters. Yes, yes, that's but true. But even, even just a, a gay rom-com being like released with 3,000 screens yeah. uh, is, is a landmark. Yeah, and, and, and Billy Eichner obviously wrote it, and this is sort of on a continuum with Judd Apatow as a producer supporting certain voices that have been marginalized by the system. Obviously, he did it with Camille Nanjiani's story and The Big Sick. And in this case, I think what we've seen more recently is there's been great representational strides in TV and streaming and so forth. So it was only a matter of time before we got a big studio movie that did this. But then, of course, pandemic slowed things down. So it's, it's fascinating to look at it now and think about, well, now that we got here, it, does it feel like a radical movie? Or does it kind of just feel like, well, this is where we are culturally right now? I mean, it felt to me like the, the movie that needed to happen before any other movies can happen on this scale. I mean, I think it's a movie that's very, uh, to a fault, some would say, I might disagree, uh, conscious of the role that it's playing and, and making that baby step forward. Um, I think that that self-consciousness reflects the character's own sort of self-assessment, his very sort of paralyzing fears over, you know, how he's perceived and what everything he's doing means. And it's very, he's very racked over thinking that way. And I think it's an honest reflection of that and a movie part of the movie's strength rather than the movie sort of guarding itself against every criticism which it's also doing at the same time but I do think it comes from an honest place um, but I, I think that it is adopting a very traditional rom-com format by design that is kind of what gives it its power as a Trojan horse in the, the culture wars, so to speak. But um, uh, it, it wears its heart on its sleeve. It's very, very, very funny. Um, it is uh, leisurely paced, which I much prefer to saying too long, because I think that I, I really... 15 minutes, though. But I really enjoy really the, like the... I, I'm in the minority here, but the Judd Apatow, sized comedies that are not the 75 minute right. comedies you're, you'll find you're one Sundance. of those funny people was robbed funny people's a masterpiece but I also I just think that like yeah, when the, then the digital age kicked in like every Sundance movie became 90 minutes or, or shorter and that has its virtues but I often feel cheated of spending more time with these characters and getting more dimension from them and you know that you're going to get that in a film like Bros well not, not to make this a, like a fully Bros centric episode but Kate you've written pretty, pretty extensively about the rom-com and this movie also interrogates it, uh, you know, directly referencing you've got mail and stuff like that. But also it's, um, you know, it's, it's sort of 
dealing with the way in which it's fallen out of fashion. We haven't had those kinds of movies succeed lately. So what do you make of the way that it's sort of addressing the genre itself? I mean, I think one of the things, and David sort of talked about this, you know, it is an R-rated comedy, which we're not getting a lot of in from the studio system in the theaters, and that's already refreshing. And it's, you know, I'm obsessed with rom-coms, and I just very, we had a wonderful 90s week, uh, you know, special edition rollout, you know, brainchild of David, and I got to write, write about, you know, the rom-com boom of the 90s, which was wonderful at the time and wasn't appreciated. And Julia Roberts has just said this a couple weeks ago that she, same thing. I don't know if she read my piece. Maybe she well, did. She has a new rom-com coming out. Well, she does. Yeah, There's a new rom-com coming out. But it's like, you know, Netflix has started, you know, for the past few years, they've done tons of rom-coms. And some of them have been hugely successful. And some of them haven't. But it's like every time one of them is a hit, people are like, oh, yeah, I like movies that make me laugh and open up my heart. So anytime we get a rom-com, I flip out. But this is a good big one. Yeah. And I think it'll remind people. I mean, I always say the movie theater, like the theatrical experience is not competing with streaming so much as it's competing with restaurants. I mean, it's about giving people a place to go on a Friday night. And what do people more want to see if they're especially looking for a relatively cheap date than a rom-com? It makes no sense to me that that was one of the first genres that was sort of shuffled off this moral coil into the streaming realm. Uh, and so I, I hope, you know, Beyond Bros just being a good movie, uh, which it is, and I haven't seen Ticket to... What's the Julie Roberts? Ticket to Paradise. Ticket to Paradise. Uh, I hope that's also a Ticket to Paradise, but I, I want those movies to succeed just because the equilibrium needs to be restored. Sanity must come back. Well, you know, and historically, rom-coms in the Great Depression were really popular because they made people feel good. That concept of being feel there's a precedent for that, and on some level, something that actually is a good time out, you know, not to... Uh -oh. Preston Sturge's Sorry, ghost I've been is... talking about bros too long. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. Um, no, but I, but I do think that there's an interesting argument there, and it's one that I'm sure Universal is hoping for so people don't wait until it's on Peacock, which I'm sure you all subscribe to. Uh, but it's a fascinating question of, of what will happen there. And, of course, if it does well, then you have this other layer, which is another thing I want to talk about, and I think this movie is a nice transition into it, which is the awards question, uh, which is something I was writing about this week. Which It's not unthinkable, if the movie is successful, for Billy Eichner to have an Oscar campaign for his screenplay that he wrote with Nicholas Stoller. And as long as his campaign involves walking down the streets of LA and shouting at random strangers. Yeah, I mean, we need more Billy on the street. That's always been true. We needed it during the pandemic, I think. But I can imagine people with masks being chased around by this guy. <laughs> Missed opportunity. Uh, but. The, there's so many movies here that are kind of vying for that slot. It's, it would be sort of ironic if like, that was the big movie that ended up getting the big Oscar boost because there's so much other stuff. But at the same time, it's very diffuse. And you know, we're all tracking this. David and I were in Telluride. Kate, you've seen a bunch of stuff now. I think one thing that I've noticed is that while we're just like swimming in movies right now, from an award standpoint, it feels super wide open. Are you getting that sense too? Well, one thing that I, I try to do when we're, you know, thinking about awards, you know, the awards season sort of starts right now is we have many, many months of this ahead. And so I try to really love the movies that I love so I can remember in five months when we're still writing about them and talking about them, what I loved about them so much. Um, so that's sort of a way of saying, I'm just trying to stay open. Um, but there are so many contenders right now. There's so many contenders at TIFF and I feel like we go home and New York Film Festival is going to start and there's a ton of stuff to be excited about and I feel like the summer sort of petered out and there wasn't a lot of stuff 
and I'm thrilled that there's so much, but I get a little tired thinking about everything that's to come. Uh, yeah, I mean, just to loop back to the last topic, I think the only thing we can say for sure at this point is that a streamer isn't going to win Best Picture. Um, so that it's not going to is not going to. You're, no, you're putting that out there right now. I yeah, I, with confidence. I mean, I, I don't know what would be. I mean, unless Knives Out, Glass Onion sort of transcends the uh, genre so completely that it. Uh, I mean, Stranger Things have happened. Like. Coda winning Best Picture. I can't wait uh, for everyone to see Bardo and change their opinion about it. <laughs> I mean, they're, the Bar Bardo's the on its own journey in the liminal space between, uh, you know, being a movie that people like and that they don't, being an Oscar contender and being a fiasco. I mean, we'll see how that plays out. I think it could be both at once. Yeah, no, I mean, what I meant, but it's not change their opinion, but change, the change the narrative. I mean, that, that movie, obviously, you and, and a bunch of other critics gave it fairly negative re reactions. I was... I think probably in some weird way affected by that when I saw that movie and within the first five minutes thought it was really funny and strange and unpredictable and then talked to people like Kate Blanchett off which was that did this sort of off the record thing but I don't care she told me she She's loved it. She's a Bardo fangirl. She heart. loved She's it. telling and anyone with an earshot how much she loved it. Yeah and Barry Jenkins all these interesting people and I feel like that's a foundation for a movie like that. So Netflix is, I mean, that may be their best shot. There was a real interesting, I, I don't know if we're able to, to talk about other film festivals. Bardo's not even here at Toronto, but right. there was a really interesting dichotomy at Telluride of all of the, like, the artist types that I spoke to uh, loved Bardo, and the, the critics felt otherwise. I, did, I didn't hate it. I found things to respect uh, about it. But, um, and this, the reverse was true of Tar. Uh, you know, the only movie of those two, Kate Blanchett was a fan of both for reasons that you can imagine. <laughs> she happened to uh, But um, a lot of the, the artists I talked to uh, did were not so high on the critical favorite of Tar. Um, it was a really dramatic split, which was interesting. Right, which again out. shows you just how wide open it's going to be in, in the months ahead. But the, the whole thing about a streamer not winning Best Picture, it's, it's really hard to tell what can because the things that are coming up are not obvious frontrunners. Something like Women Talking, I think once we saw it, we're like, like that movie, respect that movie. It's got great performances. They're all going to be fighting for supporting actress nominations. But as a best picture contender, you can see it, you can see certain weak points because it's so small, because it's very talky, obviously, and so forth. But then you have something like Top Gun, right? And I've had people tell me who work on Oscar campaigns that they want movies like this to get prominent, like big Oscar nominations, best picture even if they don't want them to win because they're working on competing ones because people might actually care about the Oscars more when these films are in the Every seat. member of the Hollywood Foreign Press is going to get a private jet ride with Tom Cruise uh, from the Hollywood Foreign Press, house. what's that? <laughs> That's still around. Yeah, I don't know. But Top Gun, what do we think about that? I mean, do we, do we care that Top Gun yes. is, is yes. still in the conversation? Yes. I mean, never stop caring about Top never Gun. Never stop. Right? I mean, you know, David and I, I think, are pretty... Uh, you know, adamant Top Gun Maverick super fans. But I mean, what Eric was saying, you know, over the past few years, the Academy has tried these sort of ways to get people excited about popular movies. Like they talked about, oh, we're going to have a best popular movie, um, you know, category. And I think, then that I think didn't that happen. went well, right? Well, the, the, remember when they talked about having like an actual category and they're like, oh no, maybe in a few years. But and they did that Then the Flash thing. entered the Speed Force. That and, was... and so they, they clearly have an interest in making, you know, these mainstream movies part of the Oscar conversation instead of just nominating the good mainstream movies. Like stop with 
you know, stop trying to have like a, a little fake category or a vote that can very easily be rigged on Twitter. Well, they have to make good mainstream movies in order for that part of the process to happen. And it's rare that we've seen a couple of bigger films this year that connect and, and then smaller films that become bigger films, like Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is uh, um, a movie that I think has is, is launched itself in the conversation. I mean, I remember the night that it came out, I was talking with the filmmakers. We were laughing about the idea, as much as I love the movie, that it could be in that conversation you know, with the hot dog fingers and the rat, the ratatouille and the raccoonie and the and so forth. And now it's one of the only things you could take to the bank is that um, we're going to have Michelle Yeoh versus Kate Blanchett, which is a real sort of uh, you know the opposite of Alien versus Predator. Like whoever loses, we win. <laughs> um, but because uh, um, they're both such incredible actors and so incredible in these particular movies. Um, and if they're going to be on the tour for six months, like we could we could fare a lot worse. That's a good tour, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, how in, insane is it to think about the, the crazy multiverse movie could be the spoiler for the Tom Cruise sequel? I mean, that's that's the, the thing that's fascinating to me about Oscar season in general is that you, some people get sick of this conversation, and I was actually in a van riding from one movie to a, to another at Telluride, and somebody else was there, and I didn't know who that person was, and I was talking shop with some other people covering the season, and this person got really annoyed and was like, why is this all you guys talk about? But the truth is, well, yes, we spend too much time talking about it. It also gives us a format to talk about stuff that otherwise we wouldn't necessarily be able to keep talking about and getting it out there. And something like everything, everywhere, all at once, like you say, I mean, you can't really fully tire of, of sort of celebrating a great movie like that. And some of the others, I mean, some of the, the international films that are here, I mean, let's say that you know, something like One Fine Morning for Me, A Handsome Love, that's, if that's the French Oscar submission, I'm not going to get sick of talking about that movie. And in some ways, more people are going to know about it as a result. Yeah, but in Everything Everywhere All at Once became successful organically and not because it was riding a, you know, the, the wave of Oscar buzz, even though that followed. This time of year, the reverse is all, often true. You see the, the sort of tail wagging the dog. Um, but it is just economics. It is a way to uh, invest in a film. You can ride a Best Actress campaign on a smaller movie that might be more uh, alienating towards a larger audience uh, to success. Uh, and even from our side of the fence, I mean, the reason why you see why there are so many Oscar pundits, let alone so many of them coming out of every single premiere and saying, you know, it's now suddenly a Best Picture frontrunner is because that is a vehicle for getting people to read what they have to say and think about these movies. Um, and so, you know, in a time when everyone and all these products are so starved for attention, uh, the awards race is not only the clearest conduit to that, but it is often, and the reason why I can stomach it uh, as much as I can is just that it, it is the the avenue by which we can talk about movies that may otherwise not receive any attention whatsoever. Um, and this part of the season is the most exciting because you can say shit like uh, Return to Soul should be nominated for Best Actress, which I believe, but uh, you know it's not going to carry water with the Academy, but I can say that until the nominations come but out. Park Chan-wook for Best Director. Yeah, why not? Yeah, but it's like these are, you know, when I tell people what I do and they're not in the industry, like they always want to ask like, oh, you know, what's going to be the best picture winner this year? Like there's a common language when you say Oscars that everyone can talk about. And I think, you know, sort of saying exactly what these guys are saying, it's a different way for us to be able to talk about the stuff that we really love. And in this way, we can talk about it with anyone. The other thing is we tend to move on from the Oscars really quickly and on to the next year. So it's almost like I, I have moments where I completely forget like what happened a few months ago for all kinds of reasons. But 
this Oscar season ended in such a like ridiculous, traumatic way that we tend to forget because of the slap, the Coda won Best Picture and how crazy that was, that that was a Sundance movie and it's, it re-entered the conversation. And this kind of brings us full circle before we get into the, the Q&A of this uh, episode. But um, you know, that movie launched at a virtual festival I don't think, I don't remember anybody saying that that was a best picture candidate when it won all these awards at Sundance virtually. And then all of a sudden, it just kept going. I'm sure there were. I, I, was there some tweet the other day where like some n n like nonsense account had tweeted that Queen Elizabeth was going to die on September 8th. And it's like there's accounts out there that just tweet that like uh, every day that something's going to happen. It's the same with Oscar pundits. I'm sure someone at Sundance last year was like, Coda's going to win best Physically picture. Physically speaking, and just, you just throw a bunch of crap you know, exactly. out there, it'll be true. Um, but I take your point that it was, it was unlikely uh, and a strange year and an unusual trajectory that that movie took. Um, but yeah, I mean, who knows what could happen? Uh, I, I don't know. Top Gun, Maverick versus Everything Everywhere All at Once. Uh, why not? Well, I just throw out there also, there's a movie here called Nanny, which won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance this year, and it's terrific. Um, Nikiatu Jusu's first feature, and she's a really talented director, and it's coming out uh, through Blumhouse, and there's an Amazon element in streaming, so you know maybe a hard one to get into the conversation in that sense, but it is really remarkable how these kinds of films have different sorts of life cycles, and I'm curious to know how it plays at TIFF, given that, again, Sundance was virtual once again this year, so it just hasn't had that moment. Coda didn't have that moment with an audience with that kind of reaction until the fall. So in some ways, it, again, it's like the entire equation. It's not just one sort of specific moment. But uh, why don't we bring in some questions from the audience? Um, if you have any, you can just stick your hand in the air. And we do have a microphone, so I want to make sure that that gets you. So that we have a, uh, the first one is in the front row right here. And uh, I don't know who's running around with a microphone, but I'm sure that they're hustling over to you because it's a recording and we don't want you to shout too heavily. So um, I think it's coming. We need some like waiting music or bring, something. Bring you a David, don't, don't I, dive off the we stage. Give you a I'm very we'll concerned. just give you a microphone. Thank you, David. <laughs> DIY. What? Thank you, David. Two quick questions, guys. Uh, do you th from the Oscar broadcast perspective, do you think they're going to try to continue to steer into the we've got to appeal to everyone or are they going to go the opposite and realize that whatever they have now, the segment they have is what they should try to best appeal to to keep that audience. And the second question is, uh, Eric and David, where do you guys shop for your socks? <laughs> I gave up on white socks a long time ago. These are uh, part of my Sonic the Hedgehog package I got at uh, Walmart a couple years <laughs> ago. It was a pretty Walmart, good um, Just whenever I see color, I, I jump on them. You know, the thing that's fascinating about the Oscars is that the, the Academy is being run by an entirely new team. Entirely, all, all of the real senior roles are new people. I um, mean, Bill Kramer's the new CEO, obviously, and he's a people pleaser and has been, I think, very savvy in interviews about kind of not talking about the bad stuff that happened, but also recognizing the reality of what the Oscars need to do, which is to appeal to everyone somehow as a, as a TV show while simultaneously pleasing the film industry that doesn't necessarily want that. A lot of people don't want best popular film. They may they want the Hollywood movies to be recognized, but they don't want to sort of like carve out a space for that kind of stuff. And I think what they're trying to do is message that they want to do two things at once, which is put on a big 
show that can get good ratings and also allow all these different kinds of movies to be a part of the show. And it's going to be a real challenge, but that seems to be sort of the, the paradox they're untangling right now. I just always think of the scene from Mad Men where Peggy has to be thanked and Don Draper's just like, that's what the money is for, you know? Like, <laughs> you really, Top Gun needs Best Picture on top of $2 billion? I mean, like, buy your own Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> well, someone did once tell me it probably costs around a billion dollars to buy a Best Picture. Yeah. If you wanted to make a movie that's a Best Picture movie just because, it probably that would be your investment. That's, and it's still not guaranteed, obviously, and we've seen... Big companies like Netflix really struggle with these sorts of things, but it, it is it is costly if you really want to get into that conversation, and it doesn't just happen organically. So, you know, one thing I wanted to ask both of you since you're here, because Ann and I talk a lot on the on the podcast about uh, going to the Oscars and the experience and all the people we talk to. So, when you're there so much, you don't really know what it's like. To, I haven't just like sat down and watched the Oscars except in 2020 uh, when. Everybody pretty much had to, because uh, they didn't allow most of us to go. Uh, so, what was it? Was it? Was there anything kind of enjoyable about watching the show this past year? Is it good TV at all? I mean, I'm so busy. Even you know, the last obviously not the last couple of years, but the years before, I go to the Oscars. But I'm back in the press room, which a fun little tidbit is that even if you are backstage toiling away, you still have to wear full formal attire in case there's any chance that a camera can catch you. So I'm like in a ball gown, hunched over my laptop. So this year I was at, uh, we went to our local bar and they, they put it on the big screen. And it was sort of interesting to just watch the show and watch it with like a normal group of people who at first were like, why are we watching this? And then they kind of got more and more into it and were having fun and then the slap happened and these people were like, thank God the TV was on. This is a huge cultural moment. And that was a very strange experience unlike anything I've had you know, for many, many years. And so I, I liked, I enjoyed just watching it as a show before the slap and then afterwards I was like, you know, I was out of my body. <laughs> What is this slap you guys are talking about? I, David, something I, happened. I, we I, have to I, tell you. I've worked long and hard to put myself in a position where I don't have to do anything on Oscar night other than tweet and uh, and drink on my couch. And uh, it was, uh, you know, some, some years it's a more fun experience than others. Uh, you know, we don't need to rehash the quality of this year's telecast, but not great. So uh, I, w in theory, would, would love to take more questions, but we have a very special guest that I'm excited to bring out. Please join me in welcoming Cameron Bailey, the CEO of TIFF. Hey! Surprise! Hey, Hello, IndieWire. It's so great to have you here, Cameron, because I know you listen to us all the time and are arguing with us from your office and throwing things. I can't even the... tell you how frustrating it is sometimes to think you're talking about exactly what we've been doing all week, but it's not quite like that, you know, and just, but I can't, I can't do that. Can't. How you can wring Eric's neck in person. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I look, it's like must listening to me because you are covering independent film, you're covering the festival world, you're covering the, the industry and the awards scene, and I don't know anybody else who's doing all of those things together. So it's great. Well, it means a lot for you to, to, to say that because we never really know who's on the outside listening in. <laughs> but, it, but also, it's, it's great to have you here because we see you up on the stage introducing all these screenings. And what we said at the beginning of the uh, episode is that the three of us haven't been here in two years, so it's really great to be back on the other side. But I'm curious what it's been like for you, because you've been here, you had the festival in 2020 in spite of all these different odds, lots of drive-ins and all that stuff. Then there was last year, which came back quite significantly, and now this year you have a lot more out-of-towners. So what have you sort of gleaned from seeing that 
process, you know, uh, just like almost as like a case study of what, it, what, what the value is in having the festival at the level that it is this year? You know, the films don't change, right? We had great films last year, great films in 2020. We had Nomadland as, as all of the fall festivals did. We had Dune here last year. We presented that in IMAX with Denis Villeneuve. That was amazing. Uh, Jessica Chastain in Eyes of Tammy Faye went on to win her Oscar. Kenneth Branagh um, across the street at the Roy Thompson Hall with Belfast. All of that was good. But if the people aren't here, it's just not the same, you know? And the one thing that I noticed, and we talked about this with, with our team at TIFF a lot, is that it's really not a festival in the same way if we don't have large numbers of people gathered together. You know, we were at 50% capacity last year. We didn't have all of our venues and it just didn't have the same vibe. And the vibe now, when the theaters are full, the streets full, people are screaming, the Swifties are out in force, all of that matters. That's what a film festival is. And then I, I suppose the, the other kind of piece of that, because we, you, you are about to go run off and moderate like five other Q&As or something. Uh, <laughs> It's such a bubble. It's impossible to get past that, right? That the festival world, no matter what big or small, is a bubble. Uh, what gives you the confidence that TIFF has a role to play in not just the awards conversation, but the actual like survival of this industry, given just you know how freaking hard it is to get people to go see movies now? Mm -hmm. You know, we have a filmmakers' breakfast every year. It's usually on the Saturday morning. So this morning, I went out and I stopped in and, and met filmmakers from many parts of the world. Uh, and people who hadn't been here in many years or who had never been to our festival before. And, you know, filmmakers uh, coming in from Brazil with their films that are made, might be in contemporary world cinema, uh, an indigenous filmmaker uh, from New Zealand uh, who was here for the first time. Um, and those filmmakers who come a long way to show their films to our audience and just to get the reaction from our audience and maybe get a buyer, maybe get a review in a trade publication, those things matter a lot. Uh, and they understand how, without a festival, it's really hard for their movies to stand out in the, rain, in the just sea of tens of thousands of films that are made every year. So that's why it still matters, because it, it, it is something that remains critical for the filmmakers. It's not just our festival, obviously. Many of the major festivals are doing something similar. But this is how people can sift through just the fire hose of movies that are out there and find out the ones that are going to be most meaningful for them. And bonus question before we wrap, how important are standing ovations to you? <laughs> <laughs> Very important for I the I wish for we the could try it right here and just go on for 15 <laughs> minutes and, and just see. Um, I find it so strange that people are timing them now. If there was a way to just outlaw the timing of standing ovations, I'd be very happy. It feels like it's a bit of a performance. If it's that, if you're counting how long it goes on for, if it's genuine and there's, it's a real outpouring of emotion to a film, that's great. Sometimes the emotion is quiet though, right? We showed the swimmers on opening night, uh, we showed Woman King, and sometimes you just need to sit in your feelings about those movies, and you're not standing up and applauding until your hands are sore, you know? So um, I, find, I, I don't like this, what seems to be a trend, uh, which I first heard about at the Cannes Film Festival, of the timing of standing ovations as a measure of the quality or enthusiasm for the film. I think that's, that's not that helpful. For the record, right? <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we've basically cleared all of that, and uh, I'm going to let you run off and introduce what, 10, 12 movies tonight, and we've got a bunch of stuff to see, too. Thank you. Big thing coming up. But thanks again, Cameron. It really oh, means a lot to have glad you. Glad to be here. And thanks, everybody, for sticking around. Thanks. Thank you, everyone.